From growing up on his family's multi-generational farm, we heard how John Butler learned responsibility and saved to buy his first car in episode one. Here, in episode two, John talks about his passion for cattle and the importance of a local circulating economy. I'm Joey Bland, and from Circle O Productions, this is Seasons. Well, John, I, I want to learn more about your your cattle operation, and uh, I'm not sure that people, you know, understand, at least in our area in the Mid-South, there are some cattle operations, but not a lot of them, and so I'm not sure people understand the different types of cattle operations. Tell, tell us a little bit, educate us a little bit on, like you mentioned, you, you and your family were cow-calf operation. Give us the different categories and explain what each one of them is. Sure. Well, in, you're, you're actually hitting, if I am an expert, this may be one of the things. I have a bachelor's degree in animal science. I went to a land-grant university, and my first job out of college was working for a nutrition company. So I worked, uh, formulated animal nutrition for about a decade. So I kind of love this space. Yeah. So, you know, I can do monogastric, I can do ruminant, I can I can talk about all of that. So I, I love that conversation, uh, but that's probably a different story as well. Well, and then you would have to tell me what all those words meant. So keep going, though. Uh, it's simple. Uh, <laughs> monogastic is a simple stomach, so it's like us. It's a hog, a chicken, and a yep. ruminant is a, is a cow. Bovine gotcha. has four compa- compartments. Yep. Um, but basically, cow-calf, in some of the delineations between the industry, is looking at where and how you you market and what product do you market uh you know to the to the consumers so for us we didn't sell our cows because we were in the calf business so we basically marketed the calves off those cows every year right so you have a weaning date about 200 220 days and you would wean those calves off and then basically we would then ship those cattle those you know yearlings um out west for a, to a feed yard right then they and, you would were, be, and you were trying to get them to a certain weight right that's kind of we would retain what your owner, target we is. would retain ownership they would end up somewhere at that time you know in in the, the weights have, have have built over time but at that time you know somewhere between you know 1250 and 1350 they probably get a little heavier now maybe 15 1550 something like that um and then they'll be processed and then they'll end up you know on on the consumer's plate um but the cows um, stay in the herd uh, as um, you know until they're cold and and, and out of production. Um, mm-hmm. But our our goal is to always sell the calf, and so um, that's the cow calf business. Um, and so that yes, Texas is the leader of that, and you, everybody thinks of uh, you know the guys and gals out west. But when you start looking at it. The, there's a predominant amount of the cow-calf industry that's east of the Mississippi River for two reasons. Huh. One, rainfall, and then grass. Yep. So you have to have rain to make grass, and cows eat grass. So that's the end of the story. You know, drop the mic, so to speak, yep. and, uh, and that's where we're at. So our annual rainfall sitting right here in Memphis, Tennessee, is about 50 inches. You know, some right. years we get a little more, some years a little less, but we'll average between 50 and 52 inches of rainfall. And that just produces an abundance of grass, and it makes it for great, great uh, habitat for a cow-calf business. So yeah. that's the story. Um, our stocking right here is about 
a cow-calf pair for every, you know, acre and a half to two acres, depending on the productivity of the land. In some places out west, you get a cow-calf pair for every, you know, 150 acres or maybe 500 acres. Yeah. Um, there's some areas out there that don't receive five inches of rain yeah. in the entire year. Right. Uh, and that usually comes in one big storm. Uh, but it's a super uh, – being in the Mid-South is super cool because we have all that flexibility where a lot of parts of the country struggle with it. And the other thing we have complete access to in our part of the country specifically is is, is basically unlimited, you know, water resources. Right. So, you know, whether you're you're pumping from an aquifer like the Memphis Sands and you're irrigating your crop or, or whether you're, you're pumping from re- retention, you know, lake, surface area – uh, it's still an unbelievable resource that we have, um, you know, um, access to. Yeah, yeah. Compared to out west. Right, right. And then it, it, talking about back to those types of cattle operations, you got feeder cows. Tell us what those are. So feeder calves. Feeder calves. So the cow will have the calf. It'll be marketed roughly, you know, a little, little less than a year. It'll go out west. It'll be it'll be fed up basically on a, right. on a feed yard, and then it'll it'll be it'll be processed and that'll be a feeder calf yeah yeah so that calf will be fed and processed like i said somewhere between you know probably from the time it was born to the time it's processed between you know 15 and 18 months yep 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 and then what type of uh, cows were you raising yeah so um historically i think the majority of the cows uh, in this part of the country have a lot of angus background to them but right. but there's several breeds there's continental breeds there's there's hereford there's other english breeds mm-hmm. um you know there is even you can get a little ear in them especially if you go further south and get a little brahma in them mm-hmm. um and so um but at least probably five to six eighths of uh, most of the of the bloodline you see is going to be an Angus-based or, or, or an English-based breed. So, And that's just because they're great mothers. Yep. So yep. Uh, it's really uh, it's really neat, uh, you know, to have that experience. You know, every day you get up at daylight and you, you get on a horse or a foiler and you go, especially during spring calving season, you go check, you know, check the herd and see yep. how they're doing. And, you know, it's just uh, it's an incredible life. Yeah. Yes, you mentioned it was hard work. It, it's hard work, but it's an incredible life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep. no doubt. I can't. Uh, I've I've ridden out and discovered a new calf. Uh, you know, with a mom, that's a pretty amazing uh, experience to it see is. what you described earlier. It is very it is. amazing. Um, yeah, it is. It really is. Um, and to see see him or her stand up for the first time. I mean, it's just it's hard to it's hard to put into words. It's yep. just a, it's an amazing picture to watch in motion. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you keep up with the markets. You know, the headlines are all um, what you just referred to. The western part of the United States really has had some severe droughts. Uh, therefore, a lot of ranchers have had to sell cows because they couldn't they they couldn't feed them. They couldn't do anything with them, so they yep. had to get rid of, uh, like you were describing, part of their herd, which is a longer term animal that they keep for long term so um i mean or is this is this a great time to be a to be a cattleman uh cattlewoman in uh w- over the next couple of years with pricing and um is this the right time to be in that business yeah so if you look at the trends it certainly looks like 
you know, what we've gone through the last two or three years has reduced the cow herd number. Uh, I believe the numbers that we've seen posted by USDA the last couple of months show the smallest cow herd since the 1960s. Wow. So it is going to be really challenging, I think, to meet demand. Uh, and then the other thing, we've done a really good job through some of our marketing programs associated with the National Cattlemen's Beef Board to um, strengthen exports abroad. Mm. So, you know, uh, either to, you know, uh, Japan, Korea, we've got some great export partners. So a lot of, a lot of beef here from the U.S. is exported outside of the outside of the country. So, yes, we're seeing an uptick in demand and what people are experiencing as they go to the grocery store is an increase in prices, which is, you know, nobody really wants that. I'm a consumer and a producer and I right. still don't want that right. uh, because... I would love to produce, a, you know, a quality product at a reasonable price, and then, um, but the back end is the the previous couple of years, the last five to seven, have been pretty disastrous uh, for the cow calf industry, um, and so as we're trying to retain heifers as an industry and keep more mothers, more mama cows back into the the herd, right. then it it, it 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 lessens the number of cattle that can go to meet the demand for beef. Mm -hmm. So that's what that's what we're experiencing right now. That is a longer cycle. That's about a five to eight year cycle. Most people look at the cattle industry and say it's a seven year cycle from the ups and downs of valleys. But what we've experienced over the last couple of years, especially since COVID, is that sometimes we can shorten or lengthen that cycle out. So mm -hmm. yes, but the marketing part of it's very, very uh, important to anybody in the ag sector because you know, most of what we grow, unless we're doing specialty crops, we're growing commodities. Right. Um, and, and, you know, John F. Kennedy has a great quote about that. You know, the American farmer <laughs> is the only guy or gal in the world that, right. you know, buys, you know, retail, retail, sells wholesale, and pays the freight both ways. That's right. And, you know, it's kind of funny, but by George, it's the truth. Yeah. It kind of hurts, too, you know. Yeah. So I, I think that's one of the things we have to always kind of remember in the back of our minds that the guys or gals that are producing the food and fiber for us are really producing it at a quality price. And mm -hmm. so even though we've seen some inflation hit, you know, some food inflation hit, a lot of those reasons are outside of the American producer. I mean, so I'll give you an example. The war in Ukraine has impacted that significantly, right. which we had nothing to do, but it's impacting our, our flow of, of inputs, fertilizers, potash, things like that, you know, phosphorus. So it's really, it's really a challenging marketplace we find ourselves in. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, stepping back on the, on, on the cattle side of things, the interest in kind of local that people have nowadays and trying to uh, source things from local suppliers. And um, I'm aware of several places where you can like buy half a cow or a full cow or all of this. Um, what, what's that market like? Have you ever Have you ever ventured into that? And what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I, I love the, the, the local drive. I do think it was, um, uh, I guess you would say, escalated because of the pandemic. Right. So a, a lot of supply chains were disrupted. What we realized because of how um, certain um, commodities are handled and processed, that more local creates more integrity within the overall supply chain system. Hmm. And so from an agriculture standpoint, what we've seen our governor do here in the state of Tennessee and the commissioner of agriculture, Dr. Hatcher, do, I think is really cool. 
and I can't speak what they're doing in Mississippi or Arkansas or Kentucky, but I bet they're doing similar things. They're actually making investments into local processing plants mm. that we didn't have any of, basically. Yep. So I, I think everybody, should, if you take one thing from, from me, buy local, buy local, buy local, buy local, support your local farmer and rancher. Uh, and that could be everything from strawberries to blueberries to protein, whether it's, you know, pork, chicken, or hogs. But, I mean, I just, man, I... I, I hope that because um, I love doing it myself, so yep. I don't I don't raise any any sheep or lamb, but I I love lamb, and so I I buy from a, a local you know lamb provider here in in the in the region, and mm. uh, because I I, I want a leg of lamb every once in a while, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm a carnivore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the um, the the background of your family with um, with all kinds of livestock. And cattle included, but hogs and I'm sure chickens and, uh, like you said, it was a um, really an all-inclusive farm. I mean, it supported the family and it brought income in. Um, it's interesting, though, just the way that those things have changed and um, and and the way that the um, some of the USDA things have impacted, uh, you know, the way people grow the the. The fact that very few people do what you do now, where they've got multiple operations going, really, you know, with livestock and with uh, crops, and so I think that's uh, I think that's really interesting how, how you've carried on that family tradition. Being intentional to buy local is critical to create an ever-growing local food economy, whether fruits and vegetables or meats. Sourcing locally is vitally important. Buy local. At Seasons Podcast, our purpose is to educate people about land investment with the goal of seeing a hundred people who don't currently own land become landowners. Our method is helping people reconnect with land through hearing other people's stories. For more information, go to our website, delta-farmland.com. Thank you for joining us today.